Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. This week, I'm happy to share with you an interview about Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society program. On May 22nd in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson launched the Great Society program in a speech given at the University of Michigan. With this program, Johnson promised to eradicate poverty with a long list of legislative initiatives in education, medicine, and many more. New York Times bestselling author Amity Schlace joins me on this episode to lay out the effects of Johnson's program, which is also the subject of her newest book titled Great Society, A New History. As always, extra reading materials are linked for you in the show notes, which are posted at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. And if you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. Here to speak with me about The Great Society, which is also the title of her newest book, is Amity Schlaes. Amity chairs the board of trustees of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, and she serves as a presidential scholar at the King's College in New York City. Amity, thank you so much for joining our show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So this book is a sequel to your previous book, The Forgotten Man. And the tagline for that book you've said is, nothing is new, it's just forgotten. How does this line apply also to the way that you approached your new book, The Great Society? Uh, well, nothing is new, is, it is just forgotten, is the quotation at the beginning of my current book. And that is called The Great Society. But it does relate to my preceding book, The Forgotten Man, because many of the lessons learned in the 1930s about government overreach seem seemingly were forgotten by the 60s because we did a repeat of our 30s actions, especially in terms of our idealism about what the collective can do. We just said, oh, government does it better, which might be the, the theme of the 30s as well, even though the, the 30s outcome wasn't so great. The 60s outcome wasn't great either, which is why the epigram is relevant now. It applies now because some of the ideas of the 60s are, are, pop, are becoming popular again, even though we learned bitter lessons when we attempted them before, mainly because we forgot nothing is new. The impulse to be idealistic can never be new, but it is the results are often forgotten. Hmm. When you refer to ideas in the 60s that drove the Great Society being popular today, which ideas specifically are those? The idea that socialism is lovable and benign, whether that socialism ends up as sort of compromised social democracy or socialism, the deep, hard kind of it doesn't matter. What matters is that what we found in the 60s was that even a little bit of socialism was quite destructive to the United States. So um, in addition, though, if you regard the headlines, you'll see um, guaranteed income, more nursery school, subsidy for parents, uh, um, wider health care, wider health care for the poor, help with college bills, all those ideas were mooted in the 1960s, and some became law to perverse results, sometimes worsening the problem. I mean, one reason we have student debt today is because we committed 
to pay for student debt to a great extent in the 60s. And those payments in turn caused an increase in university tuitions. You know, sellers sell with what they can get away with because there was more money available for colleges. Tuitions could go up. And uh, so, you know, we're still dealing with the consequences, the errors of that period, even as we propose to repeat that period's policies. We're going to get back to that later in our conversation, but I want to return to the Great Society and make it a little bit more concrete. What were exactly the goals of the Great Society? And can you give us a little bit of a picture of the context that Johnson uh, proposed the Great Society in? Why did he decide to launch the Great Society? Lyndon Johnson uh, became president by a tragic accident because President Kennedy died. But Johnson, who's who's not really a focus of this book, because I'm more interested in the policymakers below him, but anyway, Johnson had a great skill, which has been noted by many historians, which is he was a master legislator. It was said um, he created laws the way other people eat chocolate chip cookies. So one place one strength, his strength was getting laws through. He'd been master of the Senate, uh, Senate Majority Leader, and he... Um, he uh, said, I'm going to get a lot of laws through now that I'm the accidental president. I'm going to be better. His ambition is a very important factor, too. I'm going to be better than that. I'm going to do more than Kennedy. I'm going to finish the revolution that even FDR could not complete, which is I'm going to go have a bigger New Deal. I'm going to go farther than Roosevelt did in the 30s when I learned from him as a young man. So then after that, you start with those preconceptions, those commitments, and what is the policy? Um, the policy was just sort of a reflection of the desires of the time. It was almost accidental that some of those policies became part of Johnson's program. His emphasis was on his own legislative skill and his the scale of ambition. Great, not good. So, so when he gave the speech at Michigan, which is interesting because it's in the state of Michigan, and much of this book takes place in the state of Michigan, um, was it, it, what did he have in the speech? He said three things, cities, countryside, classroom. And he wanted poor people in the cities to be happier and to have jobs. Uh, he wanted the classroom to prepare Americans so they could have a strong role in the workforce. That meant more education. Johnson himself was an educator, a former teacher, and he loved local education. He believed in the community college and so on. Um, so that's the classroom. And countryside gets at a lot of things. One is poverty. Today we have J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy. Then they had um, also heavy analysis of the poverty program in Appalachia and other poor places. Johnson came from a poor place, Texas. Um, so that would be the countryside. So you have city, countryside, classroom. Those were his three nominal emphases. But as you mentioned, he also declared war on poverty and promised not just to provide a palliative, but to cure, which is very ambitious. I want to mention, though, that at that time, that didn't seem too ambitious. Um, a, a writer, Norman Pedaritz, said, well, remember, the, the men who were adults in this period, and our country was mostly led by men, had won in World War II. If we can mop up Germany and win there, then we can certainly mop up poverty at home, a residual problem, because poverty was already coming down. You kind of want to just get ahead of it and declare victory. And Pedar said that he regarded domestic policy 
um, such ambitious domestic policy in the period as a mopping up action at home. A lot of people felt that way, so they were very surprised um, at our at, at our inability to eradicate poverty, which then followed, which then demonstrated itself, showed up. Your statement at the beginning, um, when you said that Johnson's uh, legislative, you know, the rate at which he made legislation was comparable to, you know, eating chocolate chip cookies, it is so goes against someone who you have also written a biography on, Calvin Coolidge, uh, because I think wasn't it Coolidge who said that it's much better to kill a bad law than it is to write a good one? It so go, goes against Johnson's the way that he approached government. Well, yes, and thank you for noticing that. Most interviewers don't know all my work, so there, there's a reason for this. I wrote Forgotten Man, a history about government in hyperactivity with two poor or even tragic results. And I, then when I was writing that book, I said to myself, well, what instead? What could be, be, there be instead? And I grew up myself as a Johnson child, so I didn't know what else there could be instead. And I realized by research that Coolidge offers what we should have instead of a hyperactive government, which is a restrained government. And I learned much from Coolidge's wisdom. He did say it's better to kill a bad law than to pass a good one. He wrote that in a letter to his father, who was a state lawmaker in Montpelier, Vermont, you know, son advising dad, son say at that point, I believe he was mayor of Northampton. I could be wrong. Massachusetts, where Smith College is. Dad, slow down. It's better to stop, kill a bad law than to sign a good one. This is so contrary to the progressive impulse that it it struck me and I made it um, an important feature in my book, Coolidge. But now I've come back uh, to uh, another New Deal, which is the Great Society. And of course, yes, um, Johnson was um, wrong. uh, And a lot of those laws hurt us. One example today is if you look at our budget, you will see that um, we can't afford Medicare and Medicaid. At the time, Johnson thought those were just little programs. He wanted to be great, but he hung those on Social Security as sort of addenda to please Harry Truman, to please um, his, you know, his own family, to please his conscience. Um, Medicare and Medicaid, they never imagined at the time, as great as they imagined the Great Society, that, that these programs would mean that domestic policy cost more than defense. Um or that they cost more than the New Deal commitment of the mega program Social Security, yet the Great Society is actually more impactful because um, since around 1971, well, we've spent more domestically than we have on defense. And since um, there's a chart in the back of the book, since the early 2000s, we've spent more on our commitments to the Great Society than on our commitments to the New Deal. Uh, Isn't that amazing? So the Great Society is a bigger figure, a bigger shadow, a bigger burden than the New Deal in the United States, even though we think of the New Deal somehow as more old-fashioned and socialist. We live, um, as Joe Califano, one of the characters in the book, and this book is full of characters, said, we live, we are living in Lyndon Johnson's America. You've said in the book that the Great Society came close enough to socialism to cause economic tragedy. What were the tragedies that it came so close to creating? What specific effects did the Great Society have? 
Well, um, if you go back and look at your parents or grandparents, if they were trying to buy a house in the 1970s, maybe they want a four-bedroom house because they have three kids, but they could only afford a two-bedroom house because interest rates were so high, over 15%, that they just had to pay the bank the money that they would have paid to buy the two rooms. In the 70s, people thought that houses would have to get smaller and we would have to learn how to live in small houses and we would have to keep our thermostat down to 68 or even 67 and wear a sweater because America couldn't even afford energy and that we would run out. Um, So there was an economic cost right away. The Great Society was an overcommitment. This led to inflation, which we're currently not officially experiencing, but could experience. It led to, therefore, very high interest rates to curtail the inflation. It led to, led to unemployment. So we had both inflation and unemployment at the same time. And it's important to note that the Great Society experts said that could never happen. You had to pick your poison, inflation or unemployment. But you wouldn't have both at the same time. The 70s disproved that. Um, We had all poisons in the 70s and a lot of sorrow. Um, This is why Ronald Reagan, who was, um, you know, you want to understand why Reagan was popular. He said, I'm going to deal with this and we're going to have optimism again. So he made that commitment. Welfare also got out of control, which I discover, um, discovered in researching the book, one reason why um, the definition of welfare and entitlements changed legally in the 60s. And entitlements, which is to say welfare payments or Medicaid or Medicare, became legal property of the recipients, just like a patent, which was a new thing. So if everyone knew that he was legal in legally entitled to a lot of payments, it was very hard for government authorities to to cut back or to be selective about whom they paid when. And that contributed mightily to the explosion of the budgets of these programs. Now, when we talk about the Great Society and try to assess whether or not it worked, I think there's almost in and of itself approaching the conversation that way is dangerous because the Great Society promised a utopia and a complete eradication of poverty from the top down. But were there any initiatives to come out of the program that worked? The one that the older people will always cite is Medicare. It's nice to have Medicare, but in the same breath, they'll say, but I can't get a doctor's appointment, right? So Medicare, it's nice that some older people are more taken care of. Um, it would be nice if the budget weren't going to cripple their grandchildren. (laughs) So the ones that appear nice are the ones whose costs have yet to be felt. It sounds comforting Medicare, but, you know, um, but, and it's been somewhat good some of the time. Medicaid, too, there are always individual instances where you say this is an important case where someone was remembered, but what we forget is all who are forgotten. The Forgotten Man was about the 30s. This Great Society book could also have been titled Silent Majority um, because we created a lot of losers when we gave individuals benefits. Losers would be all those young families who wanted to buy a house, all those young people 
who wanted a job. The Great Society charity sounded great, but then you ask yourself, what is the ultimate charity? The ultimate charity or the ultimate, let's put it this way, good thing you can do for a poor person. The ultimate thing you can do for a poor person is to offer him a job. And the 70s did not offer people jobs. There was a very troubling unemployment, especially among blacks, after whom, you know, for whom most of the great society was written. So that's, that's, not, that's not just a paradox, it's a hypocrisy. Uh, and uh, one of the things I focus on in the book is that everyone who was writing these programs had all the goodwill in the world. These were lovable people, lovable experts, writing lovable sounding law and hurting in the process those they loved. It's as simple as that. Um, you know, and then the question is, what do, why do we permit ourselves the fantasy? Um, because good intention should include logical, realistic analysis. And that's, we permit it because politicians don't look too far ahead. <laughs> they want to win. They don't want to think about the consequences 20 years hence. And it's a nice fantasy that the government can provide. In the book, actually, I trace both public sector and private sector because there's always a choice. Public sector, we want a great society, a better society, not just an okay society. Okay, everyone wants that. Why not? The question is, how do you get it? By which vehicle do you obtain such a society, public vehicle or private vehicle? Over that decade, we over and over again chose the public way of attempting a great society. And what the book, I hope, shows through three companies, that would be Toyota, um, Intel, the company that became Intel, uh, and General Electric, is that the private sector did a pretty good job of helping people, too. If you look at all the toys on your desk, phone, laptop, Alexa, you name it, this came out of the private sector chip revolution that's in the book. On the way, that private sector provided a lot of jobs, even for poor people. One of the most interesting stories I came along uh, came upon, and I didn't know this at all, was that Fairchild, the predecessor to Intel, which makes the chips, actually was a great employer of Native Americans. They were, at one point, the greatest single private sector employer of Native Americans because they went to a tribe in New Mexico that was used to working um, on a tiny level, maybe through weaving. Um, and they hired the members of that tribe to make chips, which also requires little bitty work with, with magnifying glasses, basically. And that program showed that what we think of as a job only welfare can do, only welfare money can help Native Americans. That's a meme in our culture can actually um, be done in the private sector by company and private individual. So these are forgotten stories from the period of where we turned wrong. I think on the surface, Coolidge's quote sounds counterintuitive to say that it is better to kill a bad law than to write a good one. Why did he believe that? Because, well, a bad law has unintended consequences. And most laws are bad. We don't need... What Coolidge said is, we don't need so much legislation. Um, men do not make laws. They do but discover them, Coolidge said. That is, there are a few big laws from a higher place, uh, and those laws are pretty sufficient for us. We don't need, certainly, 
laws down to the detail that on Tuesday you may collect a milk a quart of milk and on Thursday you may not, which is really what the Great Society was. Very minute, extensive legislation and regulation, right? So Coolidge saw that. Um, and in the 60s, we did the opposite because of a kind of arrogance. We said, if we write the law carefully, it must be good because we have a high IQ. Well, that's a big fallacy. Um, the philosopher behind the Great Society book is Friedrich von Hayek. Hayek describes something called the knowledge problem, which is basically that a little business selling to stick to milk, milk every day knows exactly how many people will buy it and at what price and must adjust its price if it has competitors or it will sell no milk. Very quickly, within a day, you realize that what, what, you know, that's the way the market works, that your price is low, your price is high, where your supply is from, and what your market is like. So, so little vendors, as little as they are, without knowing anything about big government, um, are full of knowledge. Whereas a government that's, say, a Soviet government, but also a food stamp program, thinking about milk will make a decision with a bunch of charts, seemingly more knowledgeable because it has aggregates to refer to. We see X many gallons of milk were sold in the United States in a year. We can sort of find that data, but without any feedback on the price day to day. And therefore, the government will usually misprice what it's doing, causing uh, perversities, that is, unexpected results. Government officials are kind of wrapped in a cocoon from reality, uh, is a way to put it. So, Every law is to be enforced by government officials, right, or written, written and enforced, and therefore it's going to have a suboptimal outcome, according to Hayek, um, in his very um, trenchant knowledge problem argument. So, so the answer to that is less government. Um, also, you know, what is the America that was lost or uh, through the Great Society? It was Tocqueville's America, which is the community decides. Tocqueville said, the, the 19th century French um, philosopher, the world's best travel writer ever, um, said that the municipality was a fragile little creature. It could be extinguished any time, like someone from a, a disease. But it was precious because it was very close to local people, again, the knowledge. So, so a town hall would actually know how much milk was needed, what price people could pay, and where to get the milk, far better than a distant authority. Great society kind of steamrollered, bulldozered over towns by taking over work that towns historically did. So the unfortunate truth is that we can't go back to the time before the Great Society program was launched. And now, of course, the administrative state is just a large behemoth, and it seems as if most of the solutions that we, uh, you know, try to enact are just building upon the Great Society. What do you hope will result from your book? Uh, how are we supposed to move forward with this information? Well, I, I, I take issue with your contention. We can't go back. Uh, we may be forced to go back, uh, and not in a fashion we necessarily like. That's what happened in the 70s. We right now are anesthetized. We're on Oxycontin of low interest rates. We don't, we have a currency currently that is unchallenged, even if it's sometimes of poor quality. Why is that? It's you know, because we're the most important country in the world. Well, one day sooner than we imagine, our currency could be challenged by some combo of a cryptocurrency plus a commodity plus a sovereign government backing it. Right. And that is far more likely than would have happened um, if had we had this 
conversation 10 or 20 years ago. Um, our inflation can come to America. When inflation is 15%, people will know we have to make cuts. Therefore, we will make massive cuts. They won't be pretty, but if they're done well, they will leave room for economic growth to do the healing. So right now, anyone who says we can't do anything isn't really understanding the extent to which we are currently deceiving ourselves. We're lying on a couch, binging watching television, unaware of the fire behind us because we've taken something pleasant, which is an overextended currency with artificially low interest rates. Um, And that just has to end. It usually does because empires may, may end when our empire is challenged. It may end. We just don't know how it will end. But when a country overspends, as we do, eventually it crumbles. Hmm. Which is, I mean, just highlights how much of a perfect timing your book has come along in. Well, I just think, you know, the optimal thing would be to do to to act before uh, um, exigency, the sense of crisis makes us do so. Unfortunately, that often doesn't happen. You know, you, you have to wait till you're really scared to do something brave or do something drastic and draconian. That may need to happen. What we can do specifically, though, that is so key, and Acton does this, is educate the next generations on the importance of property in making America great in the first place. America did not become great because it was a nice collective. It did not become great because of the great society. It became great, to use an you know, an overused word, because of private initiative. No question about it. And, uh, you know, that's why I put all those companies in, in the Great Society book. The editors were like, what do we need stories of companies for? This is about how the government failed. We need stories of companies because they remind us how very much companies can do, investors can do, small towns can do for the United States. A good reason we did, you know, one of the very important reasons we did heal under Ronald Reagan was not Ronald Reagan. It was that he allowed business to grow by not intruding upon it, burdening it too much. It's not that, you know, one government is perfect and the other isn't, but business will carry America if it is ceded relative freedom. Well, Amity, thank you so much for joining the show and explaining your book for us. Oh, thank you. And I thank all the um, listeners uh, and uh, praise Acton. I'm a big fan. Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, please share with friends and family and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast app. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Joel Rittering.